Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and uh, I'm excited to preach on this passage of Scripture, talking about Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel. Uh, before I do that, let me make a couple announcements. Uh, Josh mentioned during his prayer that we have a couple of things coming up, so I want to make sure that you pay attention to them in the bulletin. Uh, women's tea is, this is this invite in the welcome, welcome center if you want to pick that up. So this is a great way for us to invite uh, other neighbors, so for women to invite other women neighbors, and, and this is, will be a time to, for them to interact with the gospel, get to know other believers, so please use that, invite your friends. This is on Saturday, this coming Saturday, 6.30 here at the church. Also, our children's musical, Christmas musical, is next Sunday at 6.30 here as well. And another thing I want to mention is there is a small group sign-up card in the back at the Welcome Center. If you're not in a small group, or if your small group is going to be disbanding, as some do at the end of the year, please sign up. Just put your information down, and we'll figure out some options for you. Now, small groups are for all sorts of things. Uh, you may be just seeking fellowship and community and, and accountability. That's great. We'll find your group like that. Or maybe you're thinking, how can I reach out to my neighbors and i just like to do it with a couple of other people from church. Well, we can do a small group like that as well. There's, there's, uh, Emerson has been talking about starting a 2-7 group, so the Navigator 2-7 Discipleship Series. That could be a small group as well. So sign up if you're interested in any of these things, and we'll figure out how to get Christians together so that we can be growing in Christ and helping other people grow. So those are my announcements. It's all in the bulletin. You can look at all the details there. And now children between 2 and 8 years old are released to go to Children's Church. If you're visiting here, if you're new, we're happy you're here. You can take your children that way. There'll be somebody in the foyer to assist you, tell you where where to go. All right, so please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and this will be on page 855 in the Pew Bible. If you're using the Pew Bible, this is page 855, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, please just take one from the Pew and use it at home. We'd love for you to have a copy of Scripture at your house so you can read the Bible there. Now we've been going through this series of, we call it Behold, Good News of Great Joy, and at the pic- on the picture you see two angels, or at least that's how we would think they might look. That's a guess, I think, in many ways. But And so we're looking at these four instances of angels talking to people around the birth of Christ. They're different people. Some of the different angels, sometimes they come one-on-one, sometimes it's a group of angels to a group of shepherds. But we're looking at these four instances to try to see how this message of God comes into our lives, and specifically talking about the message of Christ coming. But of course, for us as believers during Advent, we're not just reflecting back that Jesus did come, we're also looking forward to His return at His second coming as well. So last week, Pastor Josh preached on the message that angel Gabriel brought to Zechariah, the old priest, and through Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist was coming to prepare the way for Jesus. Now even a greater miracle is promised to Mary. So let me read Luke 1, 
verses 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38, page 855. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As we look at this passage, I'd like us to consider how the Word of God comes to Mary, how she responds to it, and what we might learn from this story for ourselves. So our outline has three points. Number one, receiving the Word. Number two, responding to the Word. Number three, rejoicing in the Word. It's remarkable, if you spend enough time in Luke 1, to see just how different this angelic announcement is from the angel's conversation with Zechariah. Now, just compare Zechariah and Mary. I mean, they're they're so different. Zechariah was a man. Mary was a woman. And we know how different men and women are, don't we? Zechariah was an older, well-respected man. And Mary was a teenager. I'm sure not taken very seriously by others. Zechariah was a priest. Mary was a peasant. There's a chasm between them. They're so different. Now second, compare the setting of each announcement. Not only the people are different, but the setting of each announcement is so different. The angel comes to Zechariah in Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem, capital city, religious cultural, political center. Zechariah is burning incense and praying in the temple. And, and Pastor Josh talked about it last week, that this was probably this the greatest moment of his life. Uh, his priests were chosen by a lot to perform this function, probably only once in a lifetime that he was able to do that. And so he's there, this very important moment. He's burning incense, he's praying on behalf of Israel, and that's when the angel comes and speaks to him. But Mary speaks with the angel probably at home. We're not given any details where she is. In an obscure village of Nazareth in Galilee, a not very well-respected province. And 
you just see this contrast of one setting is, is rich and majestic and there's incense and prayers in the temple and people around are praying. And here's Mary, probably at her house, and the angel just appears to her and speaks to this poor peasant from Nazareth. Now, after the announcement of John the Baptist's birth in the temple to a priest with the incense, all of that, right? Some of us might be expecting that the announcement of the Messiah would be much more majestic. After all, John the Baptist is only preparing the way for the Messiah. And yet, this is not at all what happens. Now, I thought maybe the announcement of the Messiah would be at the palace, maybe to a king, right? Maybe there'll be some sort of event, maybe at least a Facebook Live announcement, right? At least you can prepare and you can, you can get enough people to follow what's happening. And it's, it's the opposite. It's an obscure village to an obscure person in a very ordinary circumstances. I wonder if you find that surprising as you think about it. So this majestic announcement of John the Baptist and then uh, a very much more ordinary announcement of Jesus who is greater than John the Baptist. I wonder if that's surprising to you. Arguably the most important message from God to humanity comes to a rather unremarkable person in ordinary circumstances. Now, if I'm, I'm asking you if it's surprising to you, and your answer depends on how you perceive God's communication to people. How do you think God communicates with us? How do you think He works with us? You see, the Bible teaches us that the main principle of God's interaction with people is grace. It's grace. God interacts with us by grace. Which means that His Word comes to all kinds of people in all kinds of settings. Now for us, we think, oh, this is more majestic, or this person is more important, or this time seems to be more critical. And yet, if God operates by grace, meaning that it's not based on our accomplishments, our status, our location, our education, our perception of what's majestic and what's not. If God really does work by grace, it makes sense that He would speak to all sorts of people in all sorts of circumstances for all sorts of reasons. So this Word of God comes to priests and to peasants, and it comes in temples and it comes at home. Because His desire to speak to us is not based on who we are or where we are or how prepared we are to hear Him. His word does not come in response to something that we do. As in, let's set up this event. Let's make it majestic. Let's, let's make it regal so God can speak. No, His desire to speak to us comes from His grace. It comes from His love. It comes from His favor toward people. It does not come in response to something that we do or that we are. Now look at what the angel says to Mary. Verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This troubles Mary, because she probably has the same misgivings that I have. Why is God speaking to me, poor peasant, in this obscure village, in this very ordinary environment? But it's crucial to see that the angel is reiterating that you have found favor with God. 
The angel says, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's as if the angel is saying, don't worry about any of this other stuff. Understand that this message is coming to you because God is gracious. Because God wants to do something for you. It's God who wants to do something for you. It's not based on you, who you are, what you've done. This is so important for us to know that God doesn't wait for us to change, to present ourselves, to clean up, so that He could speak to us. God speaks to us in the very normal circumstances of life, in the very normal struggles of life that we experience. Now some people take this, and in fact this, the, the prayer, Hail Mary full of grace, comes from this passage. And it's a, it's a terrible misunderstanding of this passage. Because it is not Mary who is full of her grace, so that we should pray to her, so that we should ask her to help us through her grace. Oh no. It's clear here. It's God who bestows grace on Mary. And the grace is God speaking to her and working through her. That God is not waiting for her to change. God is changing her. God is working through her. God is speaking to her. God's plan is unfolding through very simple, ordinary, sinful people like Mary. Now, she has a great response, and we'll look, we'll look at that. A great response deserving of our admiration. But who she is is no different from anyone else. The difference is that God is choosing to work through her and speak to her. But that is by grace, because God operates by grace. God decides to speak to us. He decides to bless us. He decides to save us. And it's not based on our accomplishments. It's a gift that God does that. So let me, out of that idea of grace being the operative principle of, of God, let me make two points of application. One, God's Word comes to us in all sorts of ways. God's Word comes to us in all sorts of ways. So my question is, does His Word permeate your life? Are we open to hear from God? Or have we made God a person who speaks only in this context. So the setting has to be majestic. The person has to be important. It has to be the right channel. And so we limit God. In other words, we only expect to hear from Him when we set time aside for Him. Now God speaks through those regular means. But God is a God of grace who speaks in all sorts of ways. Now look at Scripture. God spoke to Hagar when her son was dying of thirst in the wilderness. Remember that passage? She's just weeping, leaving her son to die. She's, she's moved away from her son so she doesn't see him die. And the Lord, through an angel, comes and speaks to her, saves her, reassures her, gives her hope. Now if he does that for Hagar... Is it really unusual for us to think that he would speak to us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our despair and our hopelessness? Of course he does that. And many of you would say amen to that if you were more vocal, right? <laughs> because many of you have experienced that, where God has, God has intervened in your life at the lowest point, point in your life and come to meet you where you're really struggling and you're really hoping against hope that something could happen and God comes in. 
That happens. God spoke to Moses when he was tending sheep in the wilderness. Now, I think God can speak to us when we are caring for our children, right? When we're busy in the midst of life where you've got toddlers and you've got babies and you've got diapers and you, you're busy with all of that. Can God speak to you then? Yes, absolutely. And many of you would say, yes, God does speak to me in the ordinary uh, stuff of life. Even as I'm focusing on these immediate needs, God is with me. I don't necessarily have to wait to hear from him when I sit down and open my Bible. Now, God speaks through Scripture. This is not at all to discourage you to open your Bibles and read them regularly. No. But God also speaks at other times and through other means. The question is, are we open to hear his voice as he speaks to us? God spoke to Gideon when he was threshing wheat. Don't you think he can speak to you or to me at our desks, in our cubicles, in our factories at work? Of course he can. God spoke to Jonah when he was in the belly of a fish. And you don't think God will speak to you when you're doing laundry in the basement? Of course God can do that. God spoke to Samuel when he was sleeping. And he can speak to you and to me when we are tired or exhausted. God spoke to Paul when he was persecuting the church. He was on the road to get more people arrested, to to kill more Christians. And yet God speaks to him in the midst of his rebellion and sin. Now it follows that God can also do that with us, even when I am rejecting him and running away from him. In fact, the story of Scripture testifies to that is exactly how God works. He goes after people who are running away from him and gets them back. God spoke to John, Apostle John, during worship on the Lord's Day. And God can speak to you and to me at church on Sunday mornings. God spoke to Balaam through his donkey. So maybe, just maybe, God can speak to you through your pastor. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know what to think of my wife laughs the loudest at this joke. She knows how ridiculous it is that God will speak through me. I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. My second point of application is that God's word comes in all sorts of ways, but also to all sorts of people. God works by grace, and that means that he speaks to undeserving people. He speaks to unlikely people. Look at who Mary is. She's a teenage peasant. And yet God's word, this most important message to the world, comes to her. This is tremendously encouraging to any one of us who feels that this morning God's message is not for me, that God can't speak to me, that I'm not ready or worthy or have my life together or old enough or religious enough or moral enough to hear God's word. Please remember that God works by grace. That means that he can speak to any one of us no matter what condition we are in. His word comes to all sorts of people. And his word is spoken to you today. And you can hear God's word today, no matter what you come with, to church. Now, I want to be specific, and I want to address... I'm going to turn this way. I want to address teens and and children in the congregation. As I was thinking about Mary, Mary's a kid. 
She's a teenager. She doesn't have a lot of life experience. And yet God speaks to her and God works through her. God had favor on her and God can have favor on any one of our children and teens. You, know, you, you don't need to grow up to know Jesus. You know Jesus now. You don't need to be old enough to understand all the intricacies of Christian theology. You can understand what you need to understand now. You know, children get saved. They get converted. Teenagers get converted. God works in all sorts of people, no matter the age or the level of understanding or life experience or the ability to organize your life. Gospel of grace comes to us in all circumstances and to all kinds of people, and we are utterly transformed by it. So for the kids and teens, church is just as much for you as it is for anybody else in this congregation. God speaks to you as well, not just to your parents, not just to your grandparents. There's a great story that has encouraged me over the years, and it comes from Jonathan Edwards, who shares this account of a great revival in New England. This is 1730s, so we're going back a little bit. 1730s, New England. It's a great revival. Many people got converted. So many great things happened, and just completely unexpected. God did this work. So Jonathan Edwards wrote an account of what happened to explain to other believers, and many of them in England and Scotland, what was actually happening in New England at that time. And so he told stories. He just described what was happening in his church and in his area. And one of the stories was about Phoebe Bartlett. Phoebe Bartlett was four years old. Occupies maybe six pages in in Edwards' account of the revival. Because Edwards is saying, look, this is from God because unusual things are happening. He said, not just adults are coming to Christ. He's saying children are coming to Christ. Four-year-olds are coming to Christ. And he, he gives you the story of Phoebe. And then it's interesting that the footnote to, in the book, the footnote says, and this is like probably 40 years later after the book has been published and re-edited and republished, it says, it's 1789 and Phoebe is still showing fruit of repentance. <laughs> because he wanted to make sure that people understand that this wasn't just a temporary uh, excitement that she was caught, in, caught up into. This was a real conversion. She was solidly converted at four years old. Now, we're often skeptical because children are impressionable, of course. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to pressure kids to to choose Christ because their parents are Christians. They need to process it on their terms. And for some of them, it it is going to take longer. But for some of them, at four years old, they get it and they are saved because the Holy Spirit is speaking into their hearts. And you don't need to be anything to get that word into your heart and be saved. And so it's an amazing story about Phoebe Bartlett. It's just how she was so burdened by her own sin. Four-year-old kid, just burdened by her own sin. She was praying. They talk about a prayer closet. This was a custom in, in a Puritan family in New England. You would have a specific place for prayer. And so she would just be going and praying in her prayer closet as a four-year-old several times a day, crying out to God, praying out loud, crying out over her sins. And then eventually... 
there's an assurance of salvation that comes to her. I mean, this is amazing. The way Edwards records it, we can say, yes, that's exactly how people get saved, except we always talk about this in terms of adults, because they can express it, they can formulate it, we can kind of, kind of observe it. But the same thing happens with Phoebe Bartlett. She, she this, has this, this tremendous burden for her own sin. And then comes freedom, where she realizes that Jesus took her sins away. And she remembers her catechism. She remembers several questions and answers from her catechism that assure her that salvation is in Christ and that she is going to be with God forever. And there's a joy that comes to that. I mean, it's amazing what happens. And he's so careful to record it based on, on her Phoebe's parents' testimony. And then there comes a burdening for her siblings. So she starts crying over her sibling sins. Starts witnessing to other kids. It's an amazing thing. All of that to say, and, and we have stories like that here too, of children getting converted and, and, and having real faith in Jesus. All that to say is that God speaks to all sorts of people. And age is not a requirement, and education is not a requirement, and, and moral stature is not a requirement. Because God works by grace. And sometimes he will convert a four-year-old girl. Sometimes he will convert a 36-year-old man. It's, he does those things because he is a God of grace. Now, that's how this word comes to us. That's how we receive it. It comes by grace. How do we respond to the word that comes to us? What's the appropriate response to it? Now, here again, we see a great contrast between Mary and Zechariah. At first, it seems like they respond very similarly. Both ask a question to the angel. Zechariah asks, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It's a legitimate question, right? How's this going to happen? How am I going to know this? Mary asks a very similar question. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Again, both are medically impossible, and so it's a normal question to ask. The difference is in the heart. Questions are very similar, but the difference is in the heart. And we know there is a difference because the angel responds very differently. The angel perceives what's behind that question. The angel perceives unbelief in Zechariah and thus strikes him with silence for nine months, as in saying, you want to know? This is your sign. You're not going to be able to talk for nine months, and then when the child is born, you're going to know, because you will be able to talk again. And then with Mary, the angel perceives great faith and humility and trust and answers her question, (laughs) actually engages with her and answers her question. So Mary's question calls for explanation, but Zechariah's question demands proof. Very different heart responses. Now what this teaches us is that it is perfectly fine to ask questions. But there are different kinds of questions. One kind comes from a rebellious, unbelieving heart that is looking for an excuse to reject God's word. God does not typically engage with those questions very well. You remember that Jesus was often pretty harsh and sometimes dismissive with the Pharisees who were asking him questions. Many of us have this, this picture of Jesus, always patient, always compassionate, always tender to people. That is not true. Read the Gospels. Jesus is angry with some people. He is dismissive. He is impatient with some people. Why? They were not coming for answers. They were coming to trap him. They were coming to find an excuse to reject his message. And so he doesn't typically engage with with people like that. 
But he does engage with people who have the most bizarre questions, but that are asked sincerely. And he spends time with sinners, and he entertains all sorts of questions when people come and ask them because they want to know, they want to work through this. That's a legitimate question. We think of Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman at the well as examples of Jesus spending a lot of time with people and answering all sorts of questions because they're asked sincerely and in faith. So as you read the Bible, as you listen to sermons, as you participate in your small group discussions, please ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask hard questions. If the Bible is true, it's not going to fall apart if you ask a question. We need to have confidence in the Christian doctrine. It's not going to be kept together by us ignoring the difficulties. If it's true, it's going to hold, no matter what the question is. It's going to hold, so let's ask questions, but let's ask them in faith. On the other hand, there's doubt. And there's doubt for doubt's sake. And doubt in and of itself has no value. Doubt is only valuable if it leads the person to the truth. Many of us younger Christians have been brought up in a skeptical culture, in a culture that celebrates doubt, that equates doubts, doubt with authenticity. And we need to fight against that as younger Christians. There are certain things that we cannot question Let's ask all the questions we need to ask, but let's not question God's truth. Let's submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. Now, some of this is obvious to you, and you're like, well, of course the Bible is true. But for many of us, it's not obvious. And we have not been brought up in a culture that affirmed that. And so it's difficult for us, and so I'm calling on you, younger Christians, to submit yourself to the authority of Scripture. So ask questions, but ask them in faith. Ask them in order to find out what it says, in order to learn more, in order to reconcile the differences so your faith can be stronger and not just to simply prove that it's not true and that it has holes. I had a friend in college, and I went to a Bible college, so this friend was training to be a pastor, just like I was, He had lots of questions. And we spent lots of hours, as anybody does in college, there's always ongoing conversations well into the night, right? So I spent a lot of time with him asking and answering all sorts of questions. And I was on the same spiritual level with him. It wasn't a case where I was trying to teach him or help him. No, we were both trying to figure stuff out. But after a while, I realized that it was not healthy, it was not productive, because every conversation ended up with more questions and more doubt. It's as if he didn't want to find the answers. He just wanted to ask more and more questions. It's as if he wanted to to find a reason not to believe. Eventually, he did. He's not walking with the Lord anymore. It grieves me to think about this because I know him. I spent time with him. He's a good friend. But eventually, those questions led to a complete denial of Christ and Scripture. Now look at what Mary says after the angel explains how she will conceive a baby without a husband. So she asks the question, the angel responds, and then verse 38, Mary says, Behold, 
I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you think Mary understood everything? Do you think all her questions were answered? Because the angel said, this is how you're going to conceive. The power of God will overshadow you. Get it? All questions answered? Makes no sense. It doesn't answer the question. It just tells her, oh, God is going to do it. That's, you need to know that. You need to make sure you know that. That God will do that. And this baby will be a special baby. It's not going to come as a human baby comes. So she, he answers the question, but he doesn't answer all her questions. She has lots of questions still. She's a, she's a teenager trying to figure out life, and now this thing happens. And yet her response is in humility and trust. And she just says, at the end of the day, I am God's servant. And let it be to me according to his word. There's humility here. Asking questions, but asking them in faith, and then eventually submitting yourself to the authority of God's word. Matthew Henry said, No word of God must be incredible to us as long as no work of God is impossible to him. No word of God must be incredible to us as long as no work of God is impossible to him. Meaning that God can do all sorts of things. And when he speaks into our life and he says something, it's enough to know who he is for us to trust what he says. And maybe we won't understand a lot of it. Maybe we won't understand it until later. That's okay. But we understand enough about God to be able to say, I am your servant. Let it be done to me according to your word because I trust you. I wonder if we have the same disposition as Mary. I've already mentioned kind of my generation's struggle with skepticism and doubt. I wonder how many of us can honestly say, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your word. I wonder how many of us have this basic acceptance of God's word as his word, as his authoritative word. Questions are good. We need to be thinking through what the Bible says. It, it doesn't help us to just blindly go into it and not be able to figure stuff out or not even be afraid to, to ask questions. But I don't think we should reserve our faith until all our questions are answered. I don't think we wait until we figure everything out and then we make that step of belief. I think we make that step of belief as we are asking the questions and as God is answering them and as God is training us and speaking to us and teaching us. If you are wondering why we should accept God's word in faith and humility and in all its authority, I'll get to it in probably two minutes, okay? So hold that thought. But for now, I'd like to just highlight what Mary is doing here. She's asking questions, but then she's accepting God's word on faith. And there's a, a peaceful humility here. She is at peace. She's okay to accept this remarkable, surprising announcement that she doesn't know how her life is going to change. And yet, she's able to, in humility and faith, accept what God is telling her through an angel. Well, let's talk about how all of that is applicable to us as God's word comes into our lives. What is this word that Mary gets? 
Once we understand the content of what God is saying to her through an angel, this unlocks scripture to us. It unlocks the life of faith to us. And I'm not exaggerating when I say these things. Verses 31 through 33. This is the content. This is the message itself. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Here's the message. Mary will bear a son, and she will call him Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation, or the Lord saves. This person will not only be Mary's son, but will also be the son of the Most High, God's own son. So you have the human and the divine coming together. This person will establish a kingdom that will have no end. This is the message. Somebody will come who will be both God and man, who will save like the Lord saves and will rule over his people forever. God is sending a savior. God is sending a king. This God-man person. And this God-man person will finally be able to bring God and people together. And he can rightly claim the throne to the perfect eternal kingdom, not only because he's a descendant of David, but also because he's the son of the Most High. Now, This is the message. This is what we call the gospel. This is the gospel. God is sending Jesus to save you and to help you and to rule over you. This is the message. This is the central message of scripture. This is what God always says to us when he speaks to us. Now there are many messages that we receive from God throughout our lifetimes. There are many portions of scripture that talk about all sorts of things in life. But the one central message on which the whole revelation of God hangs is this gospel of Jesus, that God by grace is saving sinners through Jesus, our Savior and our King. That's the message. If you get this message, everything else starts to make sense. You can't come to Scripture without that message in your mind. It doesn't make sense. You can't come to your life without that message message in your heart. Your life doesn't make sense. But if that message is central, if you were able to grasp it, then you can live a life of faith and you can understand Scripture and you can accept any portion of Scripture in faith. Now remember in the Old Testament, Old Testament is peppered by phrases like, thus says the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord. This is what God is saying to His people. And then you get to the New Testament in the book of John, and it says the word became flesh. So all that buildup, right? God speaks here and there and here, and this is God speaking, they're angels. And then finally you get to the New Testament, and this word has become a person. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, kind of pulls it all together. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So that's the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What is the perfect revelation? What is the complete revelation? It's Jesus. It's a person. It's no longer just words. That's a person with a character, with a life, with a death, with the resurrection. Somebody at whom we can look and we can say, this is what God is like. 
This is what God wants to communicate to me. Because God used to speak through his prophets. God occasionally speaks through angels. But now, God is going to speak to us fully in the most powerful way through this person of Jesus, who is both God and man. That's the gospel. It's in Jesus. It's who he is and what he's done. He comes by grace. He comes to all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. And it's this word, Jesus, this person, that we need to respond to in faith and humility. So my question is, have you received this word, the word become flesh, this gospel of grace in Jesus? Have you received this Jesus who came to save you and to rule over you as a just and loving king? No matter who you are, how old you are, how much life experience you have, what circumstances you find yourself in this morning, this is the Word of God for you. Jesus has come to save you and to rule over you by grace. Not because you were waiting for Him, not because you possess qualities that make you appealing to Him, no, because God decided to save you and to rule over you through Jesus. Respond in faith to Him. And as you do that, everything else falls into place. So say to Jesus first, I am your servant, King Jesus. Let it be to me according to your word. The word of my Savior, the word of my King, that has all sorts of credibility and authority if you know who's speaking. Now here are the two implications, and I want to get to that question that I was asking on your behalf two minutes ago, okay? Two implications. One, if you have this basic faith in the gospel of Jesus, the rest of the Bible can be trusted even in the midst of all your questions. In other words, you don't have to have all your questions answered. You don't have to understand how every passage of Scripture fits together. If you know Jesus, if you know the gospel, if the central message came through, and you got it, and you grasped it by faith. Now the rest of the scripture makes sense. Why? Because you now know the main story. Right? Now you know what the Bible is about. You may not know what every passage is about. I don't know what every passage is about. There are passages that are hard. But I know what the whole book is about. So I can put all those other passages in context of what God is doing through Jesus. Now, this helps us because if I can accept that God is gracious, that he did everything possible to bless me, to save me, and to rule over me in Jesus, so I get that message, right? I know the gospel. Now, every other passage in Scripture is not there to confuse me. It is not there to oppress me, right? Because I know Jesus. The Word of God in its full manifestation shouts grace at me. And so any other word, any message that comes to me through Scripture or even personally through the Holy Spirit is also a message of grace. It has to be. Because the complete revelation is one of grace. So any other revelation has to be of grace as well. So you can wrestle with all sorts of passages in Scripture and ask hard questions. Yes, reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility if you can. Do that. Ask those questions. Those are important questions. Wrestle with passages that seem to contradict each other. 
But you're doing all of that in the context of knowing that this is the word of the one who came to save me and to rule over me. And thus it absolutely can be trusted. Now, that helps us accept it. My second application is that you know, whatever particular thing you struggle with, you can accept it on faith without understanding. And so speaking to my generation and maybe to some other generations here, there are things in the Bible that do not make sense to you because your culture tells you it makes no sense. And it's very difficult to accept these things. So it's not just understanding that's good, but it's accepting it as good. The first implication is just understanding how the Bible hangs together. But the second implication is accepting it in faith. And so teachings on sexual ethics, teachings on integrity, teachings on finances, all those kind of things in Scripture that many of them seem counterintuitive to me and to many of us. Now, because I know who the person is that's speaking these words to me, this Jesus who came to save me and rule over me, now I can say, I am your servant. I don't understand this, and it doesn't make sense to me, and I, no way in my own power can I submit to that. But because I know who you are, that's enough for me to say I will live my life according to the Scriptures. So not just understanding how this all fits together into one story, but now fitting all of this into one life, into your life. And saying like Mary, I am your servant, King Jesus. Let it be to me according to your word. So what I'd like to suggest to you, as we come to the table, we're going to take communion together as we do on every Lord's Day. As you come, you may need to make your peace with a particular word that has been spoken into your life. It may be a particular passage of Scripture or a teaching of Scripture that you have been resisting, that you have been marginalizing and ignoring. And now that you can put it in the context of who Jesus is, that He came to save you and to bless you and to rule over you. He is a good King. Now you come to the table and you say, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word, according to this word. So it could be a passage of Scripture, a difficult teaching. It could also be a particular word that God has spoken into your life. It can be a word about suffering in your life. Where God has come into your life and said, this is how your life is going to be from now on. And you say, how can I ever accept this? How can I, what do I do with this? But because you know the gospel, because you know Jesus, and you come into the table and you see his body broken and you see his blood spilled, you will say, I'm your servant. I don't understand how it all fits together. And I don't know where I can get the strength to do what you're asking me to do. But I will do it because I'm your servant and let it be to me according to your word. Or it may be that there's another word that comes into your life that, that is a task, there's a mission for you. Maybe God is calling you to go do something, to be someone, to talk to someone. And you're saying, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. Again, that's a word of God that comes in the context of the infleshed word of God who came to save you and bless you and to rule over you. Now if that's the case, if we know who is asking you to do this, Please remember, the person who is asking you to do it has done everything possible to save you and to bless you. These are not empty words for Jesus. Jesus is asking you to follow him and do something difficult in your life. He has already done the most difficult thing for you.
So he speaks with tremendous authority into your life. When Jesus says, go do that, go sacrifice this, it's the person who has sacrificed everything for you that is telling you to do that. So whatever the case may be, whatever a particular word of God that came into your life, whether it's through scripture, whether the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, whether it's an opportunity in your life that you feel God is pushing you to do something, He's moving you to do something. I ask you that this would be a time of your commitment to that. As you come to the table, make this walk, make this taking of the cup and taking of the bread a symbolic act of your faith. Saying, I may not understand I may not know how I'm going to be able to do that with the resources I have or the health I have or the power that I have. But in faith, like Mary, I will respond to this word of God coming into my life because of the gospel, because of the context, in faith, in humility, and in trust. If you're not a believer, I ask you not to come to the table, but come to Jesus. The word of God to you this morning is that Jesus has come for you. He's come to save you. He's come to bless you. He's come to deliver you. He's come to rule over you. He's a good and just and loving king. Submit to his authority and faith and accept that what he's done for you is by grace. It's a gift to you. That he is welcoming you into his family, into his kingdom that never ends because he decided to love you. The response to that is faith. There's no magic formula. There's no three steps. You just respond in faith and the Lord changes you. The Holy Spirit changes you completely when that happens. So I ask you to consider Jesus. If you are a believer, I encourage you to come to the table. Even if you're not part of our church, you're welcome here if you're a believer. You can take communion in front as we sing. Everybody will be coming forward or you can take it back to your seats if you need time to meditate, to reflect on the gospel, to confess your unbelief or to make that commitment to his will as revealed to you. If you are unable to come forward, an elder will bring communion to you. So if you're new here and you can't come forward, just raise your hand. We'll find you. We don't want you to miss out. And also if you're in the balconies, you can just move forward where you are. There are tables set up for you there. So please pray with me as we prepare for communion, prepare for this expression of our faith in the gospel. Father, we praise you for who you are. This most high God is a God of grace. This God who rules the heavens and the earth has decided to take interest in our lives. Though we have offended you, though we have rebelled and walked away and are still running away from you, you decided to pursue us by grace, to speak to us even though we're not listening to communicate your word to us. And this word is the word of grace. And it's concentrated in Jesus, your son. The person who is both God completely and man completely. The person who is only person qualified to be a mediator. To be one to bring people and God together because he is both human and divine. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life. This obscure, unassuming birth to Mary in in Bethlehem. This life that began in exile, as a refugee, running away, 
being protected by other people, having to rely on other people to feed him and to care for him and to protect him from harm. And as he grew and learned obedience, was perfected in his obedience and he's following the law, perfectly living a life that you want us to live, never offending you, never disappointing you, never disobeying you. And yet for all of that, he was arrested, tried, and unjustly put to death. And yet in that, your plan triumphed. Through his death, our sins are forgiven. The penalty has taken away; has been taken away. Your wrath has been removed from us because it was com- completely put on Jesus. And then he rose again with all the hope that a resurrection from the dead brings. He rose again to give us a new life. A life in which obedience to your commands is possible. A life in which trust in who you are and how you deal with us is possible. A life in which we in humility can say, we are your servants. Do to us according to your word. Whatever your word is to us. Because we know that your complete revelation in Christ is grace and goodness to us. And so we accept that. And we, we want to express our faith in the gospel and the central narrative of scripture and the central message in the incarnation of Christ, knowing that you are a good God and you are a savior and you are a king and we submit ourselves to you. And as we do that, I pray that you would give us faith to accept particular assignments, particular teachings of scripture, particular hard things in life. Lord, we confess that often we don't respond like Mary, but rather like Zechariah. We respond in unbelief, looking for a loophole, a reason to get out of it. And so we pray that you would change our hearts, fill us with faith, so we would respond to you like Mary. Not knowing everything, and yet not being shy about asking questions, but ultimately submitting to your will in faith, in humility. We know that we can't do that in our own power, that your Holy Spirit needs to do that, so we pray for his ministry to continue in our hearts, in our church, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Lord, continue to change hearts, continue to change our perspective, make us people that are humble before you and trusting in your purposes and respond to any word that comes into our lives from you with, we are your servants, let it be to us according to your word. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let us do it in faith together.